Open your Bibles, chapter 2 of Philippians. Philippians about this way through the Bible. If you're visiting, whoa, whoa, oh no. That would be bad vibes somewhere in the world, I'm sure. Whatever. We're all good under the new covenant. It's real sweet. Um, but you're going to stay seated because it's midwinter, right? No? Let's, let's become congregation. Let's become Baptist just for this moment. Who wants to stand for the word? And Hands up. That's enough. A few hands went late as well. Oh, sheesh, yeah, we're probably... All right, let's stand for the reading of the... The only reason is because we've got a big chunk of text today. We're going from chapter 2, verse 19, all the way to 3, verse 12. But I just love that by the end of the series, we would have read the whole book of Philippians out loud in our church. It's pretty cool. Here we go. This is the word of the Lord. I hope uh, in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Am I recording? Are we recording, just by the way? Got a little freak out there. Cool. Um... I hope to send Timothy to you soon. That it, this is kind of a real bit. I'm going to go through this bit shortly when I actually preach it because it's a little bit like, whatever, Paul. I hope to send Timothy to you soon that you may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone that looks for their own interests but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But also think it's necessary to send back to you Aphroditus, Epaphroditus, sorry, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger whom you sent to care for my needs. He longs for all of you in his distress because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. He almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss for the surpassing great, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want you to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participations in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Grab a seat, friends. Well done. So... uh, Again, we can't kind of go through. 
Um, you're right. Anyway, uh, so hopefully you guys have been tracking through the book of Philippians. If you're a little bit muddled about where we are, can I suggest you watch the Bible Project video, which we have posted on our Facebook page, but you can also Google, which has a summary of Philippians because we're kind of diving into these parts of the text, but as part of this kind of wider letter that would have been read out in its entirety to congregations. Uh, but the reason that we have to kind of dive in a little bit more deeply is because we're 2,000 years from removed from the culture and context, and it's been written in a different language with all sorts of ideas behind it. So uh, recently, we've been looking at the Jesus hymn. Ryan beautifully preached on this. We look to Jesus. We look at his humility, his servant-heartedness. We're called to imitate him. Jim was talking last week about living lives worthy of this example, pouring out your lives as a drink offering. And if we go to the next slide, Mom, this chunk here at the end of chapter 2 um, I'm just going to quickly do a few little bits and bobs in because I want the meat and potatoes from today are going to be in, in chapter three. Uh, but what Paul does here, because you're like, you know, this glorious Jesus hymn, and then it's like he starts going on about pragmatic, oh yeah, I'll send Timothy here, and maybe Epaphroditus will come as well, and blah, blah, blah. You're like, what's this got to do with what Paul's been banging on about? But he's very intentional here about what he's doing. Paul's a genius. He doesn't throw stuff in his letter, you know, like I would, which is like, oh, squirrel, you know, let's write about that. You know, so he's very focused on what he's doing. He's very clear. And what he's doing is he's pointing out two people that embody what he's been talking about in Philippians 2 in terms of imitating Christ. So he's like, there's these two folks, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who like live out this Jesus way of selfless living, of living as a servant for others. And so in verse 20, you'll notice that he's like, Timothy, I want to send him to you. Um, he, and then verse 20, no one else, he will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks, uh, looks out for their own interests. Now, this echoes back to the beginning of chapter 2. Don't look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. Regard others as more important than yourself. And he's saying, Timothy lives this out. Like, he's got a genuine concern for you. He loves you, and he's living this incredible lifestyle where he is like, he just wants to bless and serve you and to look after your interests. But then he talks about Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus had been sent from the church in Philippi with a financial gift to look after Paul in prison. This is a big reason why this, uh, this letter got written. Um, and he says some interesting things here that I want to dive into before we jump into chapter 3. Can you notice the descriptors that he uses about Epaphrodites here in verse 25? So he talks about Epaphrodites being a brother. Now, friends, when you come to faith in Christ Jesus, you've got a new family. Oh, dear. Like, I know how dysfunctional your biological family is, but welcome to all sorts of crazy in the spiritual family of God. Like, you look around, these are your brothers and sisters. Hallelujah. Oh, dear. So you've, we're family. And I love this because family's committed to one another. Family's there for one another. The, the, a healthy, functioning family will be there for each other and will always be there for each other. Your friends will come and go, but a healthy family will be like, it doesn't matter what happens, we're going to stick together and we're going to get through this. So there's a deep bond that happens, and we have that bond together as a spiritual family. Secondly, he's a co-worker. So there's a shared sense of purpose. Uh, we're not here uh, just to twiddle our fingers until Jesus gets back. We've been given a job to do, which taps in to the last metaphor he uses, a fellow soldier. Now, this is the one that, that, that spins me out a little bit. Fellow soldier. Now, Please remember, in the first three centuries, 300 years of the early church, they were 
hardcore pacifist. It wasn't until Constantine kicked in to gear and, and it became a state religion that then the idea of just war and Christians going to war kind of got introduced. Uh, and there's some theological arguments to be made there, fine, whatever. But for the first three centuries, they were, just be, they were prepared to get martyred. They were hardcore pacifists. So why is Paul using the metaphor of a soldier? Now, obviously, he's not using a soldier like we've got to go beat up some people. Right? It's not like we're like, oh, they, you know, that, that, I don't know, woke group disagree with us, so we're going to beat them up. That's just not what he's saying, church. I mean, you've got to say it explicitly these days. Don't do that. There's no, violence is never the way of Jesus. Always it's about absorbing violence and blessing and loving, right? But he uses this metaphor, and he uses it a few times in the epistles. Uh, one of them's in, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, where he says to Timothy, Join with me in suffering. What a great stirring moment. We, we need a little bit more of this in the Western church. But hey, it's not a picnic following Jesus anymore. You'll suffer for this thing. Join with me in suffering. Like a good soldier of Christ Jesus, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. So basically, Paul is, Paul is challenging the church in Philippi with that one little line joined me as a fellow soldier, to basically once more challenge the church in Philippi with this question, are you a civilian or are you a soldier for Jesus? Because a civilian, because the reality is this, the world is hostile to God. Like it's hostile. There is a spiritual battle going on, no doubt about it. And like with our staff the other day, like we had our staff meeting, and it's like, in a sense, there was a kind of shared sense of swapping war stories about how tough it is to be a Christian leader today. It's just not easy. You've got to have a mindset that says we are at war. There's a, there's a degree of suffering that's involved because there is a world that's hostile to God. But, but what we need in the church, without a doubt, is more soldiers for Jesus and less civilians for Jesus. Because here's what a civilian says. A civilian says, I love music. I love playing music and I want to be a rock star for Jesus and I want to be, so Lord, would you bless me so that I could be an amazing rock star for you because I love music. Uh, I want to play. But here's what a soldier says. Tell me what to do with my life. Tell me what to do. I don't care what it is. Whatever you want me to do, I will do it. Yes, sir, right? There's a big difference between a civilian mindset and a soldier mindset. And uh, a soldier has a loyalty to the commanding officer. And even if they don't understand the complexities of the battles that they're in, there is a radical obedience to the heart of a soldier. And so, friends, I, I appeal to you as your pastor with this simple reality. We need you to come up, to step up, to be soldiers for Jesus in a world hostile towards God. We need soldiers who are not just like, Lord, would you bless my life? But Lord, use my life in whatever way you see fit. Lord, I want to be poured out, like Jim was talking about last week, like a drink offering. Like Paul says, I want to live as a living sacrifice for you. So are you a soldier or are you a civilian? Church, let's, let's become people who are soldiers for Jesus. And so then, um, going back to that, uh, to that passage, um, so you've got all this going on. Now, first point of some of those metaphors I find interesting. Second observation I want to make is this. Um, that Paul is intentionally really focused on sending different people to different places. And you can see this throughout stacks of the epistles, like Paul's using folks like 
players on a chessboard in lots of ways. So I'm going to send Epaphroditus here, Timothy here. It'd be good to see her. Say hi to Priscilla over here. We make sure all of his letters have got these sort of moments. Now, Richard Borkman's written a fascinating book around some of this stuff. Next slide. Uh, and he makes this observation. Of great importance is the extensive evidence that the early Christian movement was not a scattering of relatively isolated and introverted communities, but a network of communities and constant close communication with each other. Borkman then goes on to say, all the evidence we have for early Christian leaders shows them to have been typically people who traveled widely and worked in more than one community at different times. Summarizing the communities and the letters, he says, both had a strong, lively, and informed sense of participation in a worldwide movement. So there's a sense for the church in Philippi, they know they're part of this greater movement and network in terms of what God's doing in the world today. And uh, and I love that that's the reality today. Like our church is really connected with all sorts of other churches around the place. On, uh, I had my birthday on Monday. Thank you everyone for the well wishes and whatnot on the beautiful Punamu last week. Um, and my wife surprised me uh, with some mates that came to town, which was really fun. So like I came back from the pre-meeting and, um, and Jen's like, we're going on a date. I'm like, this is great. And then Jen, she's watching online right now because she's homesick, so whatever, she's not here, so. <laughs> um, so so normally Jen takes a little while to get out of the house, like it's not, not the fastest thing that ever happens, like there's just things to do, I don't know what they are, because I'm in the car, but there's just lots of little things to do that require, but she was just out, and I'm like, we're just going now, I'm ready to go, and you are too, oh. and so anyway, we go to the to Chetil, wherever, and, um, and then I had a, and then like I saw a whole bunch of my pastor mates, like sitting in the pub, and I'm like, and literally I just couldn't, I was like, I didn't, I just couldn't, I'm like, what are you doing here? I just, I'm walking to the pub, and Jen sees I'm just, can't work it out, and she's like, they're here to surprise you, <laughs> um, and I just, this is such a joy, like, these are, these are mates that are so precious to me, that after a big Sunday, they drove and flew and all the rest of it to come here, so that they could stay overnight last Sunday night, and hang out for me on Monday, I'm like, they're, they're like kindred I'm knitted into their hearts and I'm knitted into mine. I just think it's beautiful. And I carry their churches. And then on Tuesday, I get on the plane uh, for two days of 12-hour meeting, 12-hour days of meetings. Like, and it was in Auckland, like layers of rubbish. So it's like, um, with all our vineyard movement, you know, having, having yarns about all the process we've got to build in systems. And, uh, and then... Uh, Thursday I've got these meetings and I'm wearing my 24-7 hat with all these movement leaders and I'm like, I just love that, that little bay vineyard and with my involvement different things. There's just a sense of like, we're part of something God's doing around the nation. It's not just what's happening here this morning. There's part, this great story that's been written around New Zealand and the world of what God is doing. He's on the move. And we get to be part of this beautiful thing that's bigger than us. And then I love it, come back here and I've got, we've got all the Hawke's Bay ministers that meet together once a month and we've got plans around different combined things that we're doing and the housing initiative. that it's, there's some, We're part of this great story, which is what Paul's getting onto here. Lastly, I want to point out from that particular passage that uh, Epaphrodites was so uh, sick, he was close to death, verse 27, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Paul's about to, in a second, we're going to hit the, the verse where he's like, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. Um, and he's writing that from prison. Uh, but I love that this is just beforehand. It's like sorrow upon sorrow. And Beth Moore says this, the reference to sorrow upon sorrow is in the very same context within which Paul speaks of his own rejoicing and calls the Philippians to also rejoice. You see no amount, I love, I love Beth, you see no amount of hand-waving rejoicing can elbow out sorrow upon sorrow. The two are not antithetical. Sometimes we hold both joy and sorrow, one in each hand. Isn't that true? 
Isn't that true? And so, I, and I feel very much like I'm living in that space in lots of ways. Chapter three, verse one. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's a safeguard for you. Paul said this five times already in this letter. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he says it's like a safeguard. It's like I'm here to repeat this thing because it's like the boundaries on a, you know, it's like the cheese cutter the things that we've got in the bay everywhere. You know, they put, I just hit one yesterday actually because I was fiddling with my phone. But you know, it's in, it's in, oh, is Kagan here? Oh no. Anyway, whatever. It's just, okay. I'll be handing him over after the service. Uh, for, uh, but, um, but you know, there is a safeguard because if I had, if I had kept veering across the road, uh, it would have been horrific, but you know, luckily I saw it and all the rest of it. But so Paul's saying, like, he keeps on repeating, rejoice in the Lord, and he needs to repeat it because life is rubbish sometimes. Can I get an amen? Life sucks, and we can't confuse life and God. We can't predict what's happening in our life to God's character. Top tip, right? But it's like it's a safeguard. But what did it say? Rejoice in the Lord. Now I've been wrestling with one, this one particularly because I've been working through a whole lot of grief uh, personally. A whole bunch of things. And I'm like, what does it look like to rejoice in the Lord? And I've been sitting with this all week because this has obviously a major theme of this passage. And I love it because it's like rejoice in the Lord. And I just felt the Lord say to me, and again, as I've been reading commentary and stuff, but it's like, like we just, whatever we're going through, we can rejoice in His grace. We can rejoice in His presence. We can rejoice in His love. We can rejoice in his nearness, particularly in tough times. We can rejoice in what he has done. Doesn't matter what we're going through, he hasn't changed. Doesn't matter what we're going through, his cross has defeated the power of sin and his resurrection has defeated the power of death. Hallelujah. Doesn't matter what we're going through, we can rejoice in who he is and what he has done. This isn't a denial of our circumstances, but a rejoicing that his presence is with us in those circumstances. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We can rejoice. Oh, where would we be without our Savior during those tricky times? Where would we be without his loving presence? The, 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 um, the Beatitudes are clear that there's a blessing when you're mourning and when you're going through tough stuff. And what's the blessing? His presence is with you. That's the blessing. As, as you go through that deep water, that's when he, in my experience, has found, I found him especially close. He's a refuge in those places. So we can rejoice in the Lord. I love this from verse 2. Change of gears. Watch out, but it's connected to what he's just said. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. That's talking about people, the Jewish people that did the circumcision. Because but the, there was kind of this massive thing like, like is this new, is this, to, to be a disciple of Jesus, does that require us to get circumcised, right? In Galatians, we looked at this when we went through the book of Galatians, but it was a hot topic. Now, every, every man in the room, can we just say, hallelujah, that the truth prevailed, his grace is sufficient, it's justification by grace alone that we don't have to have the snip snip at eight days old or later if you come to faith later in your life. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Come on, church. Let's just thank Him this morning for the grace of God. It's, all, it's, it's, it's His grace. It's only grace. It's only grace. It's only grace. There's no, so, but Paul's warmed up. Why? Because it's like rejoice in the Lord and all His goodness, but then you've got this whole sect that is a big deal, this whole tribe of people that are like, you've got to do these things to be accepted by God. Mutilate of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision in the sense that God's done that to our hearts. He's marked us as His in our hearts. Hallelujah. 
We who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for this such confidence. I mean, he's just so, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to go, that's strong language. You know, like this is a public letter. This is like on, online. You know when you post something strong and it's just black and white there for everyone to see? This is the equivalent. Those dogs, mutilators of the flesh. <laughs> this is awesome. I mean, Paul, Paul is transcribing this, not writing this. So Paul's in chains in prison, clink, hitting the edge of the, clink, but you know, he's, he hits the edges of his chains or whatever. And Paul Timothy's at the desk, and, he, and Paul's like, there's mutilators of the flesh and the dogs. I can't believe it. Paul Timothy's writing it down. He's racked up. Why? Because Paul's encountered the grace of God. Anyway, so Paul's like, if you can kind of like, if you can brag about, uh, you know, how awesome you are in terms of stuff you've done, then I can brag. He's the man. He's a Christian celebrity. He's got his own tally of Angela Praise, you know, TBN, whatever. He's on Shine TV. Next slide. So he goes on on that. Now, if we lose some stuff in translation in terms of like, this doesn't mean anything to us, but to the original listeners, this is just like, whoa, you're a, you're a real, like, you're the man. You're the man. Circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel tried to bring your Hebrew Hebrews. We got a little Pharisee zeal. You're like this big dog. He's like this. He was genuinely one of the big dogs in the Israelite scene, like 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 a full noise legend. John Mark Comer, up and coming friggin' you know, apostle to the nations or whatever. It's like this is a full noise dog. Uh, I was like, well, how does it? It's hard because I'm like, what's the equivalent today? I'm trying to like, and like my story's a little bit like, oh look, you know. Good Christian boy all the way through in lots of ways. But the only difference is that Paul was persecuting the church. I've never done that in terms of my zeal. I've always kind of been in it. But like, here's the thing. Like, here's my story, right? Grew up in a Christian home, baptized an infant, cross-cultural mission, confirmed in the Anglican church, baptized as an adult, youth group, Bible college, theology degree, youth pastor, mission work overseas, speaker and all the big things. You know, for 20 years I've been in full-time ministry. I've never smoked drugs. I lost my virginity on my wedding night. National coordinator for 27. Blah, 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 right? In terms of like, okay. But you know what? It means nothing. And this is what Paul, this is what, whatever gains to me now, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them garbage. Here's the thing. Your story may be the absolute opposite of mine. Literally everything, opposite. Non-Christian home, smoke drugs from age of two, whatever. You know, it's like, you know, lived in a harem. I don't know. It's like whatever, whatever your story is, here's the thing. None of my story makes me more loved or qualified in God's eyes. Nothing. Because it's about His grace. It's His grace, His mercy, His goodness, His kindness, His pursuit of me, His love. It's Him. It's only Him. It's the only thing we can rejoice in is Him. Now, I'm glad I, I was raised in that way and it protected my heart. Like the way of Jesus leads to life. It's not easy, but I'm grateful for the choices I made, for sure. I'm not, I'm not saying, <laughs> like they, they joke about in the epistles, like, oh, well, then we can just, you know, if grace abounds, we can sin. Yay, so that grace can abound even more. It's like, no, don't be an idiot. It's the grace of God teaches us how to live holy lives in Titus, right? So it's like, but also everything has consequences. So God removes our guilt from us, but he doesn't remove the consequences, our memories, our, our humanity. Thank God he's an advocate for us in all those places as well. But, but, but honestly, he invites us to live the way of Jesus because it is the way that leads us to life and protects our hearts that are so precious to him. 
But here's the thing. It's all His grace. It's all about what He's done for us. It doesn't matter if you're just in a mess this morning, you can know Christ. In exactly the same way, I know Christ. Exactly the same way. Because that's who He is. He just pursues us in His love. Gordon Fee says this, knowing Christ, in verse, in verse 7 here, uh, does not mean to have a head knowledge about him, but to know him personally and relationally. Paul has thus taken up the Old Testament theme of knowing God and applied it to Christ. So what's in the imaginations of the folks is this. It means to know him as children and parent, as a child and parent know each other, or wives and husbands. Knowledge that has to do with personal experience and intimate knowledge. It's not about, I, I know about him. It's like, no, I know him. I know him. He's there. He's near. I know him. Now, there's this epic moment here in the Greek where it's like, uh, for whose sake I've lost it, I consider them garbage. You know the Greek word here is like, literally conservative scholars, right? Hoity-toity English people in ivory towers who just are, you know, know Hebrew and Greek and know, oh dear, let's have a cup of tea and then translate some more Bible. The closest word in the English to the garbage, according to those guys, is crap. I love it. Like it's, let, me, let, me, let me read this. The term here is sometimes used of discarded food and human excrement. Whatever you think, uh, yes. So these reserved proper scholars argue the closest word in English today is crap. All the stuff that we think is a big deal is crap compared to knowing Jesus. All the successes, all the power, all the popularity, however much money or the little money you've got, all those things that our culture says makes you a big deal is crap compared to knowing Christ Jesus. I like that I can say this word a whole lot this morning because it's in the text. I love it. Christ, like Christ is everything. Christ, Paul speaks of gaining Christ in that like his whole life is now consumed with Jesus. The talos, the goal that says in his and he's like he's just orientated. He's so precious to Paul. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness. Here we go. He's he's like this isn't about what we do. Not having a righteousness that comes from my of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining the resurrection of the dead. It's through faith. It's through faith. It's in a sense like the, the, the requirement for you to step into the stunning, free relationship with your heavenly Father like the, 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 the hurdle you have to jump through is to simply eat some humble pie and say, yes, I receive it. It's just to eat the humble pie and say, I need it, I want you, I choose you. By faith. Like, by faith is like you just got to take the leap. I can't, I can't make you do it. And for a lot of the time, like it's not until you just take that leap of faith that you then step into this whole portal of His grace and His relationship, His glory. It all makes sense. It's like the, the curtains have been opened and you're all saying, see, you know, your glasses are off, you can see things clearly, whatever it is. Like, but, but take the leap. That's all I can say to you today if you haven't done that. Take the leap of faith 
and say yes to Jesus. And it's all you need to do. And then there is impartation of his righteousness. That's like all the junk that may be in your life. He comes by the power of the cross and lifts it off us and removes it and, and gives us his, and cleanses us and gives us his righteousness. It's just the most amazing experience in the world. And many of us in the room can give testimony to the glory of his goodness and grace. And so like, take the leap. It's by faith. It's through faith. You can know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings. I, I think it's an important tension here um, because for Paul, he's sitting in a prison and it's like, and he, I love this tension between we can, we can know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings. That's a healthy tension. That's a very good theological tension that we all sit in. What does he mean by that? We can know the power of his resurrection. Listen, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is available to us. That is amazing. We can know the power of his resurrection. I've experienced it. I want more of it. I shudder to think where I would be if God had not stepped into my life. He has brought me to life. Hallelujah. But then to participate... So, to participate in the sufferings. Paul isn't slipping into some triumphalism here where it's like, everything is awesome, health, wealth, prosperity, yeah, financial blessings because I tithe, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, that is rubbish theology. We're not into some Christian tribe. We experience the power of his resurrection and we participate in the sufferings. And what does that mean? It's like, there's a whole lot. I mean, I've been dwelling on this in the, the last... So, you know, COVID was helpful to really help me mine into the participation. So what, if you follow Jesus... You're going to be misunderstood like Jesus was misunderstood. At times you're going to be rejected just like Jesus was rejected. At times you're going to feel lonely because people are going to leave you. And that's a, you, it's not just picking up our cross on Calvary. The whole of life was Jesus engaging in a level of suffering because of the way of God, him living that out. And so there is a participation in sufferings. And so, and again, to be a soldier of Jesus means to say yes to some suffering. To say yes to God. And, and so sometimes we need to rattle the cage in a, in a whole world that is trying to, trying to just push you into places of comfort all the time. Where we come to church and it's like, no friends, make your life intentionally a bit uncomfortable for Jesus. Turn up to the prayer meeting. But I want to just relax and watch Netflix. Well, this is exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> like we all want it. We don't want to carry a cross. We want to carry a pillow. That's what I want to carry. I want to carry a pillow. I just want to chill and just... Re- now, I'm all about Sabbath rest. You guys have heard me bang me all that. But there's a sense where we need to step up and make our lives a little bit more uncomfortable for Jesus. Tell some friends at work about it a little bit more. For us, it's cost us financially. It's been, been misunderstood. Blah, blah, blah. There, there will be a sense of engaging in this. And for Paul, it literally meant chains in a prison and torture at times. I mean, just there is a, there is a hardcore thing to follow Jesus. But here's the beautiful thing, is that he's like, but there is, there is a hope because of the resurrection. Gordon Fee says, so certain was Paul that it had happened, this is the resurrection, after all he had been accosted and claimed by the risen Lord on the Damascus road, that Christ's resurrection guaranteed his own. So then he could throw himself into, into the present with a kind of holy abandon, full of rejoicing and thanksgiving, that not because he enjoyed suffering, he wasn't some sadist, but because Christ's resurrection had given him a unique perspective on suffering, as well as an empowering presence whereby the suffering was transformed into intimate fellowship with Christ himself. So here's the thing. This is why this is important that Paul's got this here, is that 
our present, the resurrection puts our present suffering in context. So what we believe is that one day we will rise again in glory. Here's your, here's your weekly reminder. You're going to die. You're one day closer to eternity today. You are going to die. Hallelujah. Be encouraged. Some of you may die unexpectedly. Some of you may die in an old age, surrounded by people. You're going to die. What is the Christian hope? The Christian hope is that one day we will have a bodily resurrection, just like Jesus had a bodily resurrection in the new heavens and a new earth. Hallelujah. That is the hope that we have. That is why Paul bangs on about the resurrection. And so whatever suffering we may go through in the present, in light of the glory to come, Paul says it's light and momentary. Your light and momentary troubles. That is, that is context. That's why Paul can rejoice, because he has eternity in his heart. He's like, there, like this is, our life is like this. <sighs> Over. I turned 42 last week. I'm like, you know how, some of you guys are a bit older than me? No, this is true. Like, I'm five, six, seven. And then it's like, you hit, and then you kind of hit your 20s and your 30s. And then you, does anyone else feel like this? I'm like, 43, 43, 43, 43, and I'm like, we're dead. And I'm like, is anyone else feeling like that? It's like, we're just done to go quick. And I'm like, I can't just go 242, 41 yesterday, and 42 now, this is freaky. But there's eternity to come, eternity. So I can make decisions now that are based on the hope I have in Jesus for that resurrection, hallelujah, right? And this is, this is where... Uh, Paul finishes with this. Not that I've already attained this or have arrived already at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, so again, not that I've attained this, not that I've attained what? The resurrection yet. That's what the context is. Not that I've attained it or have arrived at my goal with this resurrection body and all the rest of it, but I press on to take hold of that which, for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This language, this whole book of Philippians is beautiful in the tension that it holds of celebrating the finished work of Jesus and then inviting us to be people that press in to take hold of the great hope and promises that we find in Jesus. Like the, Just because the grace of God is our central theology doesn't mean that we're passive in our faith. We are, like Paul uses language here, I strain, I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus, like I want to experience more resurrection life here in the present in anticipation of the resurrection to come. Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, that future reality, I want to see it breaking forth into the world. And what does that look like especially is that your soul experiences more love, joy and peace as an experienced reality on the daily as every year continues to go past as you press on to take hold of the resurrection life of God which sees your soul flourish, right? So like, this is where Dallas Willard's brilliant quote, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. So it's like you don't earn the grace of, you can't earn it, doesn't matter how good a Christian you've been over your life, it's a gift. But grace is not opposed to effort, so I, like the spiritual disciplines that we contend for are the effort I put in to position myself to receive the grace and love of God on the daily. The rhythms of grace. I want to learn to walk in the unforced rhythms of grace. I want to be an apprentice to Jesus that sees my life look like his more and more and more. Amen? So 
Now, Paul is affirming, affirming two things, that he has not yet come to know Christ in the way that only the eschaton, this is, the, this is where Bible nerds theology, they use language, eschaton is like the age to come. So Christ says, they're, they're, we will see him face to face, right? So, there's a, so Paul has not yet come to know Christ in that way. And therefore, even though he knows Christ now, including the power of his resurrection, such knowledge does not mean either that he has not completed or he, has arrived, he hasn't arrived yet at the final goal. So he's like, I just want to know him more. I want to press on. I want to strain on heaven within Christ, in Christ Jesus. I love that Paul finishes this particular thing with like this really an eternal perspective. It's helpful for us to, have, to come to church and get an eternal perspective again because life just wants to just focus us on the, on the absolute moment now. But there's a, these are the moments we take a step back and say there's an eternal story that I'm a part of. Let me live my story well in the light of that great story. Amen? So until he returns in glory, we're going to press on. You know what? Pressing on and straining ahead and all the rest... That, that's a passionate life for Jesus, right? Don't you love people like that? I love like Timothy's, we've got a Timothy's and Epaphrodites in our church who just embody this, like, I want to live the way of Jesus. I love it. They inspire me. But here's, here's the thing. People that love Jesus get passionate because he's a passionate God. And ultimately, the passion of the Christ is what set us free. The kingdom of this world is cynical and detached and lethargic. In the kingdom of God, we are alive and passionate. But here's the thing, friends. Passion is not how much energy you've got for a particular thing. Passion is where you are present. Your presence reflects your passion. Where you turn up reflects what you are truly passionate about. So you have come to church this morning, pat yourself on the back. Your presence reflects a passion for God and his church. Well done. Tonight, I can promise you this. I will drive to that prayer meeting not wanting to go. I'm tired. I've played music. I've already packed in before you guys even turned up. I was here first and packing in. Then I played. Now I'm preaching. I'm going to pack out. And I'm going to go home to a sick wife and a kid. Hey, didn't have much sleep because of the sickness. I'm going I'm to drive there tired. But I tell you what, I'm going to turn up because I'm passionate about God and his kingdom and my presence reflects my passion. And so on Monday morning, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to turn up to Jesus in my devotional space because my presence reflects my passion. Straining, pressing on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I'm going to keep turning up because he's worth it. Everything else is crap. He's worth it. He's so everything else is crap. Jesus is everything. And the earlier that you can get to that deep conviction in your heart, the more, more your life will flourish. Simple as that. The deep conviction that everything else is rubbish compared to knowing him. Get it in your bones. Get it deep in your heart and let your presence reflect your passion for him. Let's stand together and pray.